Well, I'm excited to share this morning. Um, earlier this year at youth, we were, uh, we were studying the famous stories of Jesus with our, with our small group of students. And uh, the reason we did that is we just really wanted our kids to hear the famous stories of Jesus again and just really immerse themselves in what Christ uh, and what Christ said and how it's so relevant in their lives. And so we covered uh, the famous stories, uh, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the seeds, the parable of the talents, um, all of those. And of course we covered probably the most well-known story, the prodigal son. Um, and I really enjoyed this series with the youth. They were all really good studies, and they're all really insightful, and the youth really engaged well. But this study on the prodigal son was one that just really hit home uh, for me personally, and, and for my small group of senior high boys especially, it was a significant uh, Wednesday. And so this morning, I want to just preach on probably the most well-known story ever told. And you've all heard it many times, and you've probably heard a number of sermons on it the way that I have as well, but I don't think it ever gets old. And it's just so rich and so deep. And so we're going to look at Luke 15 and uh, just look once again at uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, many consider this the greatest story ever told. It is the gospel within the gospel. If somebody came to me and said, if I had to read one section of scripture, one story, just to introduce me to what Christianity is, to what God is like, this is where I would point them to. I'd point them to Luke 15 and say, you've got to read the story of the prodigal son. And so you're going to hear it this morning. I know that you're in a series on family, and I think this, uh, this story fits because it's a story about a father who had two rebellious sons and how he responded and how he acted. And this is a story about how God is like a really good dad. So I think it fits. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 15, and we're just going to read it together. And I do believe it's going to be up on the screen as well. Luke chapter 15. Uh, in Nelson, we're in the habit of standing when we read Scripture, so I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we, as we read this together. Uh, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. It's not up there, just so that we understand the context, and then we'll jump into verse 11. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus goes on to tell three stories, and we're going to read the third one here. Uh, verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer, to, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. Now, this story is powerful in any culture, but it really does pack the most weight when we understand it in its original setting in first century uh, Middle East culture. Um, so I'm going to do my best this morning to take us back into time and to try to hear the story the way the first people who heard the story would have heard it, to try to understand the cultural nuances and just hear it as they would have heard it. Um, so first thing to notice... Uh, Notice who the story was told to and under what circumstances. The religious leaders, they were frustrated with Jesus. They're frustrated with him because he welcomed sinners and he ate with sinners. Uh, For their understanding of who God is, this was a perfectly acceptable charge. See, for them, God could only associate with those who followed the rules, who, who lived up to the religious systems. And so they're frustrated with this Jewish rabbi who's hanging out with bad people, with sinners and eating with them. And then Jesus tells them this story, and he paints a totally different, counter-cultural picture to what God is like than what uh, these Pharisees and leaders thought God was like. So the story begins. The younger son asked for his share of the inheritance. Now this is a really, really big deal back then, because you don't get your inheritance until your dad dies. So essentially the younger son was going to his dad and saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And in that culture, this was his way of saying, I'm no longer part of your family. I I want out. I wish you were gone. See, he wasn't just asking for money from his dad. He was removing himself from his family. And this was the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin back then was to dishonor your father and walk away from your family. There there is nothing else that you could do that is worse uh, in first century Middle Eastern culture. And in many ways today, uh, it is the same way. Family is everything. And the worst possible thing you could do is dishonor them. So how does the father respond? An expected response back then, the father has just been dishonored. He should grab his stick and beat his younger son and put him in his place. That would have been perfectly acceptable and perfectly normal. The father should have disciplined his son and put him back in his place. And if the beating was so severe that the son would die, oh well because he has just dishonored his father. This is how the dad should have responded. And so the leaders and the people hearing the story would have, would have just been on the edge of their seat going, I wonder how's the father going to treat this? How is he going to handle this rebellion, this younger son who has just disgraced his father? What's he going to do? Uh, uh, in many ways today, it's the same thing in the, in the Middle Eastern countries. Uh, we've all heard stories of a child converts from, from their family or religion to Christianity. They're excommunicated, and in some extreme situations, they're hunted down and killed. 
by their family because they have committed the gravest sin. They have walked away from their family. So what does the dad do? Well, he gives his son his share of the inheritance. This is a shocking response. For those who have heard this story, this is an utterly shocking response. Isn't the father angry? Why is he not exacting his rightful punishment on this kid? He should be putting him in his place. Already Jesus is challenging their perspective of what God is like and what kind of father he really is. So the son takes the inheritance, which, by the way, wasn't just straight-up money. The father would have to give him a third of his assets, and the son would have to then take those assets and sell them off so that he could have money to go away with. Um, That's why when it says he got together all that he had in the passage, the Greek meaning for this is just simply to turn it into cash. So he turned a third of the father's assets into cash, got rid of it, and then took off. It gets worse. He uses his father's money in Gentile territory. He leaves Israel, he leaves his homeland, and he goes into Gentile territory. He goes into a distant land and he squanders it, literally meaning wild living, reckless and immoral behavior. For a Jew, losing your wealth to a Gentile was grounds for excommunication. So not only did he take his his dad's money and sell off a third of his dad's assets, he took off into Gentile territory and blew his money in reckless and wild living. The son was really insulting his father here. It gets worse. As if Jesus hadn't painted a harsh enough picture yet, the son manages to dig the hole even deeper. He blows the money, and he's out of money, and he ends up working with the pigs. Now, if you know anything about Jewish customs, what is the most immoral, unclean, dirtiest animal you could possibly be around? It's the pig. And here is this Jewish son working with pigs. Jews were forbidden to eat pigs. Being in their presence was, uh, was considered unclean. The Jewish Talmud, one of the Jewish law books, says, Cursed is the man who raises swine. But the son doesn't stop there. Not only is he raising the swine, he's looking at the swine's food and thinking, I need to eat that because I am starving. He hits an all-time low. Now Jesus, he could not have painted a worse picture of rebellion. I tried to illustrate this to my students at youth and, uh, and try to compare it to our own culture. And it's just, it really isn't possible because we just don't live uh, in the same context. I told them a story about a kid who steals all of his parents' stuff and then goes and, and blows it on, on girls and, uh, and drugs and partying and then becomes a drug addict on Skid Row and ends up being begging on the streets and just makes absolutely nothing of his life or her life. And that doesn't even come close to how bad the younger son was to the father. We simply do not live in a culture that has an equal comparison to what the son had done. So the story continues. The son, as we know, comes to his senses and he decides to return to his family. And he comes up with a three-part speech. I want you to notice these three things. As he's slowly walking home and he's thinking about, what am I going to tell my dad? What are the things that I have to say to him? I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's the first one. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the second one. And the third one is make me a slave. Remember those. These are the three that he's rehearsing in his mind as he's coming home, thinking about meeting up with his dad. He's coming home. His dad is waiting for him at the doorstep. And it says that he is filled with compassion. And Jesus is emphatically saying, this is what God is like. This is the kind of father that God is. 
And this is the first of many surprises. As I've already said, the son has excommunicated himself from the family. His dad should have given up on him. He should not be standing at the door waiting for his son to come home. In his dad's mind in that culture, I don't have a younger son anymore. I'm down to one. The second one left and is no longer part of the family. He should not be waiting at the door. But he was. He's waiting for his return. It gets better. The father runs to his son. We might say, oh, big deal. He's running to his son. We have to understand that running in that culture for, for, for a patriarch like this father is an incredibly shameful way for an honorable man to act. A Middle Eastern patriarch does not run. He walks slowly, chest up. And he has a long robe. To run, you have to pick up your robe and show your undergarments to everybody as you run. You don't do that. It's one of the most shameful things that you can do. Dad doesn't care. He just runs towards his son. He doesn't care about the cultural issues that are going on at that time. He humiliates and degrades himself to embrace his son again. He runs towards him. It gets better. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. And by this act, the father incurs all the shame that the son had on himself, and he takes it upon himself. In the act of embracing and kissing, he says, who you are is now who I am as well. And he takes it on himself. It gets better. The son starts his speech. What are the three things? I've sinned against heaven and against you. And what's the second thing? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father lets him go there, right? Because it's important to admit your guilt. Repentance is a really important part of the process of coming back to God. But what was the third thing? Make me a slave. And you don't find it in the text, do you? He can't even get the words out. The, the father interrupts him. The father interrupts him. And the son, the son tries to make things right by becoming a servant. He tries to go to his dad by saying, I'm just going to earn it back. Uh, just accept me back, dad. And the father says he, will, he won't have anything to do with it. Isn't this so indicative of human nature? We come back and we try to make it up to God. We try, we try to make it up. I'll just, just make me a slave. I don't need to be your son anymore. Just, I'm going to work towards earning your favor back again. And the father has nothing to do with it. He doesn't even let the kid get the words out of his mouth because the father is not about works. He's about grace. We don't need to go to him with our list of things that we're going to do to make things right. He won't even let it get out of our mouth. It doesn't end there. It gets even better. Instead of becoming a slave, the father reinstates him as a son, a valued member of the family. And here's how he does it. He puts his best robe on his son, probably the robe he was wearing. He takes it off himself and he puts it on his son. And then he gives him a ring, a signet ring. This is the kind of ring that represented the family line. You know when you send a letter and you press your ring into it and it represents your family? He takes it off and he gives it to his son. You're part of the family again. And then he gives him sandals. And sandals is what distinguishes a servant from a son. Servants don't have sandals. Sons do. So dad gives him a pair of sandals. And then the father calls for a fattened calf. Now a fattened calf is the best choice of meat it was saved for the most honorable guests. It did not happen very often. Guests like a wedding banquet, something that would happen maybe once a year, once every couple of years. It's the best choice of meat. And Dad says, bring the meat out. We've been fattening him up for a situation like this. Bring the meat out. Now, the choice of a fattened calf also meant that the whole village would have been invited. When you, when you kill a fattened calf, you bring in your community. The father, what we see here is a father spends his best on his son. 
He gives them everything. He takes the best of what he has and he says, it's yours. We're going to celebrate that you are back with me. This is what the Father is like. Imagine how the people would have heard this as Jesus is telling this story for the first time. This is what the Father is like. When we come to him, he puts his robe on us. He clothes us with Christ. He welcomes us into his family and he says, you are part of the family of God now. And he puts on a big party in heaven. This is a picture of what happens when we come to faith and what God does. The application here is obvious. There is nothing you can do so grievous to fall enough to fall out of favor with God that he stands at the door waiting for you to come home. There is nothing you can do to walk away so far away. He welcomes you back with open arms. And he doesn't ask anything from us. All he asks is that we walk towards him, that we set our path towards him and go that way. And then he comes and he embraces us and he kisses us and he says, welcome home, you're part of the family again. Some of you here today, I don't know many of your stories, but you might feel like the younger son. You need to hear this story. God welcomes you home. There is nothing that you could do or ever do to fall out of love with God the Father. He stands at the door waiting for you. And he wants to lavish the blessings of heaven upon you when you do that. It's a good story, right? And oftentimes it ends here. Many of the kid books that I read my kids, this is the end of the story. You don't hear about the second son. But there is another character in the story. This is why this parable is really called the parable of the prodigal sons. Not just one, but two. So let's talk about the second son here. He hears the party. He finds out what's happening. And what happens? He gets really angry. And he ends up dishonoring his father even worse than the younger son. Let me explain why. Because in that culture, being an older son means that you have a few really important roles in that society. One of the roles of the older son in a situation like this would have been to work your hardest to bring reconciliation between the dad and the son, to almost act as a mediator. That is the job of the older son. He should have been doing that. He wasn't. We don't see any hint that he was trying to bring reconciliation between the two. And secondly, uh, one of the most important roles of an older son is when there's a party going on, when there's a community party, the role of the older son, uh, whenever something of this magnitude was happening, is to serve the honored guest. As a representative of the family, being the older son, your job, your God-given job is to serve the honored guest because you represent the household. This is an honoring uh, place to be, and this is what you do. Well, he doesn't fulfill this God-given role. And what's the key phrase here? He refuses to go in. He wants nothing to do with it. And this very act in front of the whole village, because remember, the whole village would have been there, this was a public, another public dishonoring of his father. He refused to go in, and they would have all seen it, and they would have all known what his role should have been, and he refused to come in and do it. Incredibly shameful to the father. It gets worse. Check out his reply to the father. What does he say to him as the father comes out and says, Son, what's going on? What does he say? Look. Look. When you address the patriarch of the family, you don't start off with look. You say, Sir, or my father. You don't dishonor him by saying, Look. What an incredible insult and humiliation to the father once again in the presence of the community. It gets worse. 
what does he say? Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Does this sound like a son or a slave? What does he sound like? The, old, the older son heaps further insults on his father by telling him that he, as his son, feels like a slave. That his dad has been treating him like a slave and not like a son. Imagine the insult this would have been to the son, to the father. He accuses his father of not treating him like a son. You have never given me anything. And this, I would suggest, is even more hurtful than what the younger son did to his, to his father. Well, how does the father respond? Well, all the people hearing this story would have, been, would have been going, beat him, grab your staff and beat him. He just dishonored you in public. You punish your son and put him in his place. Well, we already know he's not going to do that, right? But they were expecting that. That would have been totally normal. But once again, we see lavishing grace of the father. The father assures his son of his status. You are always with me and all I have is yours. And then he pleads to his son to be gracious and to share in his joy over his lost brother. He says, come in. What an amazing father. Hey, what an amazing picture of what God is like and who he is. We have a story of two wayward sons. To the younger son, the father says, come home. And to the older son, he says, come in. Neither of them get what they deserve. And both of them are shown extravagant grace. As I reflect on this story, uh, I realize personally, probably like many of you here, I resonate more with the older son than the younger son. I've never really rebelled. I've never really walked, like consciously walked away from God or done really terrible things in my life. I don't, I don't resonate much with the younger son, but as I think about the older son, I think I, I, I fall into that category a lot more easily. There are times in my Christian faith where I have made it more about duty and obligation than being a son of the living God. I make it more about following the rules than living in the reality of who I am. As I was teaching this to our, to our students at youth, one of the senior high students uh, keenly pointed out, I asked him, what do you think was the problem with the older son? Like, why was he so mad? And this is what my student said. He said, the older son was ticked off because he couldn't have any fun couldn't have the fun that the younger son did. There's no rewards for doing the right thing. And this is probably how the older son was feeling. Isn't that insightful? I mean, how often do we turn faith into a duty that looks more like slavery than it does joy? I do that. To my shame, there were times, especially in my youth, but even in moments today, where subconsciously I think to myself, oh, I wish I wasn't a Christian. When I was a youth, boy, it would sure be fun to go to all those parties and sleep around with all those girls and dabble into drugs and get into all that stuff that all my friends were doing. Why can't I have any fun? Oh, the slavery. Oh, the bondage of being a Christian. And today, the temptations are different. But there are subconscious, there are times where I think, man, I'd sure love to spend all my money on myself. Why do I have to be generous? Why do I have to look at my money as if it's also God's? It is God's. Do I really have to love my neighbor? He's kind of annoying. Like, do I really have to do that? Why am I a Christian? Oh, the bondage, oh, the slavery. And I start making it more about rules and laws than I do about relationship and who I am as a son of the Father. And when I think like this, I become like the older son who lives more like a slave than an honored member of the family. 
And what happens when I start thinking like that is I miss all the far, far greater benefits of being a Christian and being a son of the Father than this world could ever possibly give me. But I miss that because I'm focused on something else. See, the older son, he totally missed the point. The father responds, and I want you to hear these words this morning. You are always with me, and all I have is yours. This is the father's response. But the older son didn't believe him. He did not live into his reality, into the reality that this was true. That he is an honored member of the family. That all that the father has is his. He just didn't live like that was true. He acted like a slave. Andrew Murray says this about this passage. The elder son thought he was serving his father faithfully all these years in his father's house. But it was in the spirit of bondage and not in the spirit of a child. He was simply living in unbelief, in ignorance, in blindness, robbing himself of the privileges that the Father had for him. As I reflect on this passage again, the words that have been mulling in my head this week as I have been thinking through this passage and when, when I taught it to the youth in February, the words that, go, that mull through my head over and over again are the words, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. And I have to ask myself, do I really believe that? Am I living like that is true in my life? Because the Father says it is true. All I have is yours, and you are always with me. So this morning, maybe you feel more like the younger son, and it's time to accept his grace and his forgiveness and come home. Because nothing you could do could, would turn him away from you. Or maybe you feel more like the older son, and it's time you stopped acting like a slave and start believing that you are an honored child of the living God who has given you so many blessings. He has bestowed on you so much and he says to you, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. That's what the Father says to us. So as Jason talks about family, I think this story tells us what kind of family we belong to, doesn't it? We have a Father who loves us so much and gives us everything, far more than anything Everything that we need gives us so much more. He's a God who pursues us and loves us and says, I've adopted you into my family. Would you please just believe it and live like it's true? Well, you're part of his family. Amen? Amen.